And welcome to the show. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show, where we look back over some of the most interesting stuff we've covered in the last few years on the program. So hopefully you can stay with me. And I thought I'd get the ball rolling with a story that we published in November 2018. This was about the Dawn mission to Vesta and Ceres winding up. So after 11 years in space and historic orbits of two separate objects in the main asteroid belt, the Dawn mission is now over. Part of NASA's discovery program, Dawn was a huge success demonstrating cutting-edge iron propulsion and vastly improving our knowledge of the origins of the solar system, the large asteroid Vesta and the dwarf planet Ceres, a startling and exotic world believed to have once had an ocean. The Dawn mission is a NASA mission out to the asteroid belt, which is between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter in the solar system. The Dawn mission uh, has concluded so that that spacecraft has finally run out of hydrazine fuel, which was required to accurately point its antenna to Earth to send back data. So right. it's actually possibly still collecting data. It, it can't just actually can't, just yeah. can't point the information back to Earth. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, that's over. But an incredibly successful mission used ion propulsion, which was a kind of prototype, new technology for propulsion, which uh, was tested very successfully. And it actually allowed the probe to, which was part of NASA's kind of so-called lower-cost discovery program, to actually go into orbit around two objects in the one mission. It's the first time any spacecraft's ever done that. Mm. So first it went out to Vesta, which is a large object in the asteroid belt, and it went into orbit around Vesta, took high-resolution imagery. That was from 2011 to 2012, so it was launched back in 2007, September 27, 2007, went into orbit around Vesta for a year from 2011 to 2012, and then it... it uh, left that orbit and headed out to Ceres, which is the largest object in the asteroid belt, uh, and uh, it went into orbit around that. And it's been in orbit since March 2015, and it's predicted that it will stay in orbit for a very long period yeah, right. of time, you know, possibly hundreds of thousands, mm. even millions of years. It'll stay out there just going round and round and round and round. We've got most of the data that we hope to get from that. But I just thought I'd give listeners a bit of a, a recap about this. So launched in 2007, did a Mars gravity assist in 2009. Uh, from 2011 to 12, as I said, was, was around uh, in, in Vesta. Uh, and then... 2015 arrived at Ceres, that dwarf planet, so a bit like Pluto, which New Horizons visited. So these weren't flybys. Uh, no, these were actually going into orbit. orbit. Yeah, yep. right. So iron propulsion is a really interesting technology and made it possible to go to, to two objects, to go into orbit around two objects. No other spacecraft anywhere, whether mm. manned or otherwise, has ever done that. Mm. So generally what we do is if we go to Mars, we, uh, you know, we, we send the, the probe out, it fires its engines at the right time, everything goes according to plan, mm-hmm. it goes into orbit around, mm-hmm. around Mars. Same with uh, Juno at Jupiter. It's, it's in orbit at the moment, a big looping orbit around uh, Jupiter, diving in over the poles. The Cassini orbiter, which is now finished, it, it did the same thing. It only went into orbit around one object. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this was kind of unusual in that sense, uh, but it, it did take advantage of that uh, slow build-up of speed that ion propulsion gives you. And ion propulsion was first mooted, I think, in science fiction. I think in Star Trek mm. in the 1960s yep. or 70s mm-hmm. was when the idea first came up. So it allowed active powered flight of nearly six years. It was a record-breaking use of solar electric propulsion with a, a speed of 25,700 miles per hour, which in kilometres must be a, a, over 40,000 kilometres per hour. 
nearly equal to the velocity provided by Dawn's Delta launch vehicle. So really successful mission. Some of the key findings, it orbited Vesta for more than a year, confirmed that Vesta is the parent of the HED. These are called the Howardites. Eucrites and Diogenites. These are meteorites which have been known around Earth. These were connected back from the findings that uh, the Dawn made at Vesta. They were able to actually say, okay, that's where those objects originated. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a match, mm-hmm. which was a pretty cool thing to do. Vesta is about the same size as Saturn's moon Enceladus, which from memory, I think it's about 500 kilometers in diameter. So quite of a small object, much smaller than Ceres. Uh, it's an asteroid rather than a dwarf planet. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a fairly inert object. Um, it, it, uh, it's mainly, uh, you know, it's carbon-rich surface and it's been covered with impactors. You know, it wasn't as interesting object as Ceres, which they went on to go into orbit around. They found that Ceres had signs of, you know, still present-day activity, yeah. so geologic activity going on, new um, cryovolcanism visible on the surface, which is, uh, you know, pretty unusual. They expected these objects to be inert, just dead rocks, mm-hmm. And in the case of Ceres, they found it that it, it, you know, it was really quite an active world. Uh, it's possible it had a subsurface ocean in the past. Right. They even found organics in several locations on Ceres' surface, so the kind of precursors to um, the building blocks of life. So that was kind of interesting as well. Entered orbit around Ceres in March 2015. It was an ocean world where water and ammonia reacted with silicate rocks. As the oceans froze, salts and other telltale minerals concentrated into deposits that are now exposed in many locations across the surface. So really a very, very exciting and very, very successful mission finally wound up, wound up because of a lack of hydrogen, lack mm-hmm. of fuel to, mm-hmm. to point at the Earth, to point the antenna back at the Earth to send the data back. But great science. It proved that ion propulsion is a really viable technology for future missions, so hopefully we'll probably see it again. It did allow us to explore very successfully and quite comprehensively two large objects in the asteroid belt. Fantastic. So pretty good stuff there. And you are listening to From the Vault, the best of beyond infinity. My name is Piers Cunningham, and we've been talking about the mission out to Ceres and Vesta. I thought I'd play a a piece that we recorded back in December 2015 uh, about two theories seeking to explain the strange bright material on the surface of dwarf planet Ceres. There's a dwarf planet called Ceres, and there's a spacecraft called Dawn, which has actually got an ion drive engine, so it's experimenting with a new propulsion system Mm -hmm. developed by NASA. It's out in orbit around a uh, dwarf planet called Ceres, which is in the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt is basically about halfway between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter, Mm -hmm. and it's a bunch of both rock and ice, thousands of fragments varying in size, Ceres is one of the largest, I think it is the largest object in the asteroid belt. They've been refining the orbit of Dawn, getting closer and closer down to the surface, so the resolution of the imagery is getting better. And from early on, they noticed this particular white spot in the middle of a crater roughly in the centre of this dwarf planet. Mm -hmm. And they had no idea what it was. It's about the colour of bitumen most of the time. Mm -hmm. It's a very nondescript-looking object, but it had this really bright spot, very visible. What reflective spot? Very reflective. You know, really stood out from the rest of the surface, which, as I said, is about the colour of asphalt, so it's like a dark grey. They've even had surveys of where the public can go to the website and click on what they think it might yeah, be, right. you know, options of what yeah. this could possibly be. And people said, oh, it's an alien civilization, of course. <laughs> of course you know, yes. but, uh, Is it water ice? Is it something going on underneath the surface? Is it a subsurface ocean, for example? We've oh, yeah. seen them on other objects in the solar system. 
So two theories have been advanced about what this is finally, and you can go to the Dawn website. It's dawn.jpl.nasa.gov. We'll have links to that on our website. The first theory is that the bright material that's been observed is a type of magnesium sulfate called hexhydrite, and it's a different type of magnesium sulfate that we're familiar with on Earth, Epsom salt. So it's kind of a salty Mm -hmm. substance that could be causing very bright white patches to be observed. Just to give you a little bit more about where it's been observed on the surface, it's it's in a crater called Okata. This crater contains the brightest material on Ceres. Okata itself is about 90 kilometers in diameter, and its central pit covered by this bright material measures about 10 kilometers wide and is about half a kilometer deep. They really weren't very sure what this was. One suggestion is that it's a magnesium sulfate called hexhydrite that's bubbling up from the interior. Is there a plan to try to send some probe down there to no, actually test it? No, the Dawn probe has actually entered its closest, its lowest orbit. Mm-hmm. That's going to take it down so they'll, they'll really start to improve the resolution so, of, of their imagery, so, imagery down to about 35 metres per pixel once they get the final orbit. And is that revolving around Ceres or is that just in the same orbit no, as Ceres? The crater is fixed and the white substance is fixed but the object is rotating yep and the probe is in orbit around it so every time it rotates we see this go across the face Ah, so it's a permanent feature it's been there all the time that they've been able to observe Ceres they've estimated the age of this particular feature on Ceres with the bright spots in it is about 78 million years old now I've got no idea how they managed to get that figure it's pretty amazing that they <laughs> yeah. could date an object just from on the visuals. surface of, yeah. a, of a dwarf planet but obviously they've got spectrometers they've got high resolution cameras the second study which has also been published in the journal Nature is that it's actually ammonia rich clays so they use data from the visual and infrared mapping spectrometer a device that looks at how various wavelengths of light are reflected by the surface allowing these minerals to be identified ammonia ice would evaporate on Ceres today because the surface at the equator the warmest part of this object is about minus 33 degrees celsius relatively warm Mm. in terms of where it is in the solar system it could be ammonia rich clays and that has implications for where did this object come from The conventional theory was that it actually originated in the asteroid belt. A lot of these ice and rocky objects collided and then coalesced and then formed this dwarf planet. But there is a suggestion that it might have come from the outer solar system out near the orbit of Neptune and migrated its way in. Oh, wow. So they're still learning things about our solar system. They don't know exactly. I mean, there's also suggestions that Jupiter, the largest planet by miles in the solar system, has actually moved considerably in its orbit Mm -hmm. and that Uranus and Neptune. So this ordered solar system that we look at today may have been very, very different earlier on in the evolution of the solar system. Dawn's reached its final orbital altitude at Ceres, and it's going to start sending back imagery, which will get down to 35 metres per pixel. So we will have the opportunity to look at this object at higher resolution and hopefully be able to shed more light on what its origin is. The final orbit of Dawn is 385 kilometres above the surface of the dwarf planet Ceres. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. And you are indeed listening to From the Vault. We'll come back and listen to a report that we published in 2016 about the suggestion that there's actually a ninth planet. Now, we're not talking about the dwarf planet Pluto. That used to be called the ninth planet. It was demoted to the uh, the category of dwarf planet 
controversially some years ago, but that's what it remains. There has been some suggestion that there's actually a very large object, could be as big as Uranus, so much bigger than the Earth, lurking right out beyond the Kuiper belt, yet to be discovered. This would be an amazing thing if it turned out to be the case. So stay with me. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. An additional planet has been discovered. Well, theorized. I theorized. Guess. Yeah, we've had actually had a link to a video from the co-discoverers of this putative ninth planet because Pluto got demoted. Pluto's considered a dwarf planet, so it's not a planet. That happened a while ago. Just recently, a couple of scientists from Caltech, a guy called Konstantin Batiagin and Mike Brown, have come up with a theory that there is in fact a large planet about the size of Neptune. Mm -hmm. It's in a 20,000 year orbit around the sun and it's an elliptical orbit. It's not a perfect circle and it's outside the plane of the rest of the planets which are basically all orbiting like they're on a plate. So they've theorised, they've inferred the existence of this planet. They haven't directly observed it, and there is going to be an effort to directly observe it. They're waiting for some some telescope time. They're going to use some of the most powerful telescopes around in Hawaii and I think also in South America, in Chile. They're going to try to back up this theory with a direct observation that will actually prove the existence of this Planet X or Planet 9, as it's been nicknamed. Because I think this has been considered previously. I don't think it's necessarily a new idea, but there's been no evidence to date to, to really sort of pinpoint that it's, it's there. Whereas I think from the calculations they've been doing, adding up all the mass and the slight wobbles in the orbits, they've said, well, there's, we believe that there's something that's out there that's sort of pulling and using com, you know, complicated models. They've been able to recalculate or work out, well, if there was something else there a planet this far out then that would account for these wobbles which is where they're sort of heading that's why they're heading down this path and it's pretty far out i believe about the size of neptune it could be as far as 600 au or even up to 1200 au yeah, no, au I, being a distance from the earth to the sun yeah the astronomical unit yeah. yep as you said they've just inferred it there's about six objects in the kuiper belt which have strange orbits that clearly are being influenced by something else that's not known about, Mm. that's been pulling them into the orbits that they're in. And that's why they they believe that there is this Planet 9 or Planet X, which has actually been talked about for ages. Percival Lowell, back in the early parts of the 1900s, was an American astronomer, and he was trying to find Planet X, as he called it, and he didn't find it. Mm -hmm. There's kind of been theories about it. He didn't have the same reasons for looking as these scientists have but there's been a hunt for it for a long time so see at least with the other planets that are closer you can see the movement in relative to the stars whereas this one because it's so far so faint or potentially so faint the the actual movement that's likely to happen is minuscule it will be very hard to sort of pinpoint or pick it out that's why i think it requires these really heavy duty telescopes to be pointing into that area of space I'm not sure how wide across how many degrees, whether it's a, you know, a millionth of a degree or something like that, whether the field they're looking for. But it's somewhat of a, a needle in the haystack, I believe. Yeah, it's not going to be easy to find. It's a very distant object. They've done sky surveys and stuff, and they're going to be actually going back over some of the data that they've had from satellites that have been looking at the region where it might be. But they've actually looked for objects a little bit bigger 
than the size that's been predicted for mm. Planet X. Mm. And so it may not show up in those large surveys that have been done. One was done by NASA's Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE, and that's a satellite that's completed an all-sky survey looking for the heat of brown dwarfs or giant planets. It hasn't looked for something of the size that's predicted for Planet X by the UC. SC <laughs> is where these scientists are. And as I said, we've, we've actually had a video of an interview with these two scientists. Which was their official release. Yeah, the which was the yeah. official release. And, and, there's, and the interesting thing is that NASA has recently come out, and we'll post another video by Jim Green, who's a leading astronomer at NASA, planetary astronomer. He actually cautions about accepting or, or just taking it as, as a definite that there is indeed a planet X. Yep. He said that it's been inferred rather than actually identified. He said that it's a very exciting development, but at this stage it's just a theory rather than a, uh, an actual finding of another ninth planet in the solar system. And it's an opportunity for the amateur astronomers to point to, to the stars and have a look, but I would think with the distance that it is, you'd need a fairly powerful telescope, which is why they're trying to get this telescope time. Do you know if they'll use the Hubble telescope, or is that too deep field, too far to be, to be looking for this kind of object? I don't know whether they'll get you know, the time that's allocated to these, particularly the Hubble Space Telescope, which is the most powerful space telescope that might find this sort of thing at the moment. Time is, is uh, very, very tightly yep. guarded by other astronomers who've got other allocated projects that they're working on with Hubble. So I believe that they're going to use the Keck 10-metre telescope in Hawaii and also there's a telescope called Subaru. It's an eight-metre telescope, another one in Hawaii, owned by Japan. It has enough light-gathering area to detect such a faint object coupled with a huge field of view, 75 t times larger than that of a Keck telescope. So rather than having to point it and only seeing in sort of a very narrow range of the sky, they can actually use the Subaru telescope to look at a much wider area, and so that's useful. It makes it less of a needle in a haystack, mm. basically. Mm. It's a really exciting development. Let's hope they do find it. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real game-changer and, and, and the most major discovery within our solar system since the discovery of Neptune, the outermost planet at this stage. Yeah. It's pretty big stuff if it turns out to be true, but at this stage they've got a lot of work to do using telescopes, and I believe later this year, 2016, they're going to have access to the Subaru telescope and possibly Keck as well, and they'll use them to try to confirm their theory. Just reiterating the, uh, the discovery of Planet X, or Planet 9 as it's been nicknamed, by these University of California Santa Cruz scientists is still a theory. NASA's come out and said in response to all the publicity and hype that's followed the reported discovery of an additional planet the size of Neptune way out beyond the Kuiper belt. It is a theory at this stage yep. and it's yet to be confirmed with the proper observation and that will obviously be the, the clincher. And it might take years to find. It might be something that we might be waiting for a long time. It could happen in 20 years' time, they find it. And there was some initial response before people realised who the scientists were that were doing was, oh, no, this is just another one of these, uh, you know, oh, Planet Nine, it's, it's out there. They tried to sort of downplay it. But then when they realised it was Caltech and these researchers, there was actually more weight behind it. So yeah. I, I, well, Mike Brown, one of the scientists who, who sort of made the initial announcement, he discovered Sedna, which is quite a large object in the sort of outer reaches of the Kuiper belt. So he's got a good track record of finding yep. things. And he actually was also involved in the demotion of Pluto from its status as a planet, mm -hmm. a dwarf planet. You know, the pedigree of the scientists involved is pretty good. 
we'll keep our listeners posted as to uh, you know developments with this exciting story. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. And welcome back to the program. Next up, I thought I'd uh, replay a feature story we did back in July 2016 about Juno's hairy encounter with the planet Jupiter. So this is a probe that's in orbit. It's a big looping orbit, and it's the first really to photograph and study the poles of that giant planet Jupiter. Incredible radiation to withstand out there. The orbiter could tell us much about the origins of our solar system. It has eight instruments, including a microwave radiometer, magnetometer, spectrograph, an infrared mapper, and gravity science experiment to study that planet in unprecedented detail. The Juno mission is about to go into orbit around the giant planet Jupiter. Jupiter was the king of the gods back in Greek mythology, Mm -hmm. and his wife was called Juno, so that's where the origin of this is. But it's a great mission. It's going to study the planet itself rather than focusing much on the 63 moons that are out there, and and one of them in particular, Europa, is one of those possible habitable zones Mm -hmm. that exist in the solar system. But the focus of this particular mission is to look at the planet itself. So it's not a flyby. It's actually going to go... It's going into orbit. It's going into orbit in seven days, four hours and one minute Mm -hmm. basically from now you can go to the website which has got that timer on it's missionjuno.swri.edu or just do a search for mission juno and you'll find lots of stuff on the web about this there'll be a a live webcast around the time probably starting about half an hour before the orbit insertion Mm -hmm. unfortunately there's no photos going to be taken until after they've gone into orbit so a few days after they'll switch on all the instruments but at the moment once they go into this orbit insertion phase they want to minimize the chance of anything going wrong with the computers and so on on board so all the instruments get shut down Mm -hmm. and the focus is very much on getting into a a very big looping elliptical orbit so what happens they fire their engines the engines slow them out down just enough to get captured by the enormous gravity of jupiter and that results in this big elliptical orbit and then over time they'll refine that into a polar orbit so they're going to be zooming in and out of these very dangerous radiation rings that surround jupiter it's only expected for this mission to last well, not that long. On October the 16th, 2017, it will deliberately crash into Jupiter's atmosphere. Now, the reason for sort of setting that kind of deadline on it is that this intense radiation around Jupiter has the effect of frying instruments yep. and electronics, even though they've got the main computer, the mission computer that controls the spacecraft, is inside a titanium box that's a centimetre thick mm-hmm. inside this solar-powered craft. Yeah. That's to protect it from the radiation of Jupiter, which is apparently, you know, it's it's if a human was subjected to it, you'd be getting like, you know, the equivalent of having a million X-rays at once oh, wow. sort of thing. Yeah, crazy. Uh, so it's a pretty dangerous environment they're going to be dipping in and out of these radiation belts and getting down closer than any other spacecraft august the 5th 2011 launched from cape canaveral in florida and got a gravity assist from venus first and then earth to get enough speed to reach out to jupiter Mm -hmm. so it's taken five years for it to get there 
It's going to be there in, as I mentioned, seven days and three hours and 58 minutes and counting. Mm -hmm. Then we'll have to wait a few days, but we will start to get photos of a resolution that's never been seen before. For example, we've never seen the poles of Jupiter, Mm -hmm. so we're going to get to see them for the first time close up. Less emphasis on the moons. There's various instruments on board which are going to be studying the cloud tops and actually being able to peer down through the clouds into the interior of the planet. They believe there could be quite a lot of water there, which they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And they also so is, see... Is that the specific purpose of the, the mission? Is it just to get more photos and to maybe look under the, uh, the clouds to see if there's water or, or is there uh, something else? It's to do with understanding the origin of the, of the solar system because Jupiter may have migrated to its current position. Mm-hmm. It's got a huge retinue of satellites around, as I mentioned, 63 they're going to be studying Jupiter's composition and gravitational and magnetic field and search for clues about the planet's formation and the source of its raging winds, which can reach speeds of 618 kilometers per hour. Yeah, right. So they want to find out what's driving that kind of speed. I mean, this is an enormous planet. I think it's something like 300 times the mass of the Earth. Mm-hmm. If you could see its magnetic field from Earth, it would be bigger than the moon in our sky. Yeah. So it's, it's it has a big influence on the solar system. They want to get an idea of why it is the way it is. Mm-hmm. It spins every 10 hours, so much faster rotation than the Earth. Yep. They want to find out why, what's driving it, yep. what's the source of the energy. Mm-hmm. They believe that it may have a metallic hydrogen core. Mm-hmm. So it's a gas giant, yep. unlike a terrestrial planet. It's not rocky. There's no surface as such. Mm-hmm. Basically, you just go down, down and down. And they've sent, they have sent a probe in the Galileo mission of the 90s and early 2000s was the last orbiter. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first orbiter and last to be at Jupiter. It dropped a probe into the atmosphere which kind of had slightly inconclusive. It only lasted for about an hour and got crushed by the pressure as it built up on the way down. Yeah, Yeah, and just the pressure as you go down further and further into the the clouds. It went down on a parachute. It did send some some information back. But unfortunately, the Galileo mission had a couple of major mission problems. One was that its high-gain antenna, this big umbrella antenna that was on Galileo, was supposed to open and didn't. Mm -hmm. So they had to use the low-gain antenna, which was there just kind of as a backup at very low data transfer rates, which limited, I think they got less than 5% of the science Uh. data returned to Earth that they were supposed to get from that mission. Mm -hmm. They still got a lot, and you can go and you can search Galileo on the internet, and you'll find NASA photos, detailed photos of the moons and the cloud tops and other information that they got, but it would have been a lot more if they'd actually had their main antenna working. And a tape recorder that was on Galileo was found to be dodgy. It was overheating, so they had to run that at a much slower speed than was planned, Mm -hmm. and that, again, limited the amount of data they got back to Earth. So it was kind of a successful failure. They did do some good stuff with Galileo, but scientists have been itching to get back there and have another look. Unlike Galileo, which was a nuclear-powered spacecraft, the Juno mission is Mm solar-powered. It's got enormous solar arrays on board. These extend for several metres out on three sides of the spacecraft. That's to generate enough solar power to survive there and, and to fulfil its scientific objectives. But you said you know the computers have been dormant whilst it's in transit. So have they been tested? Or we, do we know yeah, they, if it's... They, they actually have. If you go to the Juno website, you will see there was a photo that was taken about a week ago, but it doesn't really look like much. I mean, yep. you can see the planet and you can see some of its moons, yep. but we're going to have to wait until after orbit insertion before yep. we get to look at those pics, which is what I, for one, am looking forward to. The trajectory is interesting. Various parameters have been applied to the orbit designed to fulfil several basic requirements. One is to avoid Jupiter's strongest radiation belts. As I mentioned, it's a very dangerous environment for electronics. Enable the spacecraft to be bathed in sunlight at all times to produce sufficient amounts of electricity from those solar arrays. Mm -hmm. Maximise the science pastimes. 
allow all instruments of Juno to cover every area of Jupiter at least once during the course of the mission and provide the timing necessary to facilitate the different science modes and communication schedules with the deep space network antennas in, I think it's Spain, Australia and California, the places that allow for constant communication with deep space probes, including Juno. So it should be a very exciting mission set to reveal a lot about the makeup of the planet. As I said, less emphasis on the moons for this mission, but they will take photos. They've got a wide angle camera called Juno Cam. It's actually a kind of a public outreach instrument that's been put on board. Most of the science requirements are going to be done with other instruments mm -hmm. other than a camera. Mm -hmm. They're going to use spectrometers, that yep. kind of thing, to peer through and analyze the clouds of Jupiter. But the camera is an outreach thing. And you can actually go to the website, which is missionjuno.swri.edu. And you can put in things that you'd like the camera to target, ideas yep. that you have yes. for imaging, and they'll take those on board. So very much an outreach yep. instrument on board the Juno spacecraft to engage the public in this mission. It's going to be deliberately crashed into the atmosphere on October the 16th, 2017. Probably by that stage, radiation will have damaged electronics and they don't want to pollute the moons with spacecraft debris because, yep. as I mentioned Europa, for one, is a place which might have a subsurface ocean. Mm -hmm. It's believed that it does. Mm -hmm. A place that's on the short list of habitable zones mm -hmm. in our solar system beyond Earth. Yep. And so the last thing they want to do is to pollute that. Microbes can survive in space. And Apollo 12 landed near a surveyor craft. The astronauts walked about 300 metres and took a lens off this surveyor unmanned robotic mm -hmm. spacecraft that landed nearby, took that back to Earth, and they found microbes on that camera that had survived yeah. from Earth for three years on the moon, which is a vacuum in space. So but, any microbes that are on Juno now, yes. uh, they'll be surviving or potentially surviving Possibly. At this stage. They yeah. tried. Every effort was made to keep the thing clean, but they don't want to run the risk of actually introducing microbes from Earth yeah. into this pristine environment of, say, yeah. Europa. The plan is to save enough fuel and deliberately end the mission on October the 16th, 2017, crash it into the atmosphere of Jupiter mm. where it'll just be crushed and not have an adverse influence on any life that might be there. Mm. And it's funny, it's got some interesting passengers on board. It's got three Lego figures depicting the 17th century Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei, the Roman god Jupiter, and the deity's wife Juno, mm -hmm. which the spacecraft is named after. But these Lego figures are made out of aluminium rather than the usual plastic, <laughs> so they can withstand the extreme conditions yeah. of space flight. There's also a plaque dedicated to Galileo. He was an Italian astronomer who was the first to observe with a very ancient telescope, Jupiter and its moons, mm -hmm. and then to infer from that the earth wasn't the center of the universe and that we might actually be traveling around the sun along with jupiter and all its moons and this was something that the catholic church at the time and the papacy didn't like at all he was forced to recant and deny that Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. 
You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPP FM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter. 